King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the princes of the earth, our Lord Jesus Christ. We today are going to be considering the beginning to the gospel of John, verses 1 through 18. Not going to be handling every verse here, but uh, to give you an introduction to some of the greatest uh, thoughts of a book written 100 years ago this year by a man named Gresham Machen, professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary, who in 1924 uh, wrote, uh, excuse me, 1923, um, wrote to explain the difference to his contemporaries between the new religion that had come over across the ocean from Germany that was by its friends called liberal or liberalism, he says, really a completely different religion. Some people thought there was just a different, different uh, theory on this or a theory on that, but right at the very heart, there is a major difference in that heart we come to today. Jesus Christ, is he Emmanuel or merely our example? Here now from the Gospel according to John chapter 1, and I'll read the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this majestic word once more, we pray that Christ would declare to us by His Spirit Your magnificent glory, His eternal sonship, our everlasting hope that we should be a people lifted up to heaven as it were today. 
We pray that your fatherly love, by which you draw your children near, would comfort and instruct us and give us something to say to a world that is perishing without knowing you. Oh, Father, may they know eternal life, which is to know you, our true, our true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's in him, his name that we pray. Amen. Mark Twain was reputed to say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And our 2020s do seem to be rhyming in a certain way with the 1920s. You ever think about this? Those 1920s, a century ago, began with a pandemic of a virus called, anyone? The Spanish flu. And those poor people didn't even have Dr. Fauci to help them through it. And today, uh, we have experienced the same thing. Now, uh, just as today also, the 1920s saw one of the most rapid advances in technology that the world has ever seen, especially through communication technology, as for the first time, ordinary people like you and me started buying telephones <coughs> and radios and ways to connect instantly with others over great distances at a rate much faster than texting via the telegraph. The 1920s are remembered also for our nation's attempt to deal with the use and abuse of a newly controlled substance that was still being smuggled across our borders and manufactured secretly in homes. Not fentanyl, but alcohol, gin. Our country was morally and culturally divided in the Roaring Twenties as a move to the cities gave rise to new lifestyles, focusing on entertainment and pleasure and away from the traditional virtues of America and religion. Polarized elections pitted southern and rural states against urban and coastal states, and there was a great religious struggle for the very soul of our countrymen between uh, liberals and conservatives, or as it was often called at that time, modernists and fundamentalists, that last word not at all being appreciated by educated people who simply held the historic Christian faith. Well, in that struggle, it was 101 years ago that Harry Emerson Fosdick, Baptist minister that was in the pulpit of the First Presbyterian Church, the historic church in Manhattan, he delivered his most famous sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He was ready for a fight. He questioned the historicity of the miracles of Jesus and his virgin birth. He denied the inerrancy of Scripture and the cross as an atonement for sin. He said that the early church creeds had garbled Jesus beyond all recognition and that he didn't accept Jesus' second coming as a literal event. Of course, Fosdick was certainly not the first to say such things, but he was the first to do so with such assurance that most of the church would very soon be agreeing with him. I do not believe for one moment, he said, that the fundamentalists are going to succeed. He declared, 
triumphantly. God keep us, in the last line of his sermon, intellectually hospitable, open-minded, liberty-loving, fair, and tolerant. Well, that resonated resonated with some, but he soon lost his pulpit because of that sermon. Nevertheless, it was reprinted in numerous publications and spread throughout the country, and John D. Rockefeller, Jr., that billionaire, now we might say, in today's dollars, he had his publicist print 130,000 copies of that sermon and had one sent to every Protestant minister in America. Rockefeller also built Fosdick, a big, beautiful, gothic stone church in New York called Riverside, where he could then preach fearlessly without retaliation. And Fosdick soon made made the cover of Time magazine, why he taught homiletics at Union Seminary in New York until 1946, Uh, A seminary, by the way, from which here at VT we have hired several teachers who don't see things as we do. Martin Luther King Jr. called Fosdick the greatest preacher of the 20th century. And in his second most famous sermon, a few years later, he boasted, We have already largely won the battle we started out to win. The future of the churches." is in the hands of modernism. Now, Fosdick didn't believe in Christ's divinity, his divine nature as God. He said, wherever goodness, beauty, truth, and love are, there is the divine. He said in another sermon, oh, he said, we can call Jesus divine if we mean the divinity of his spiritual life. But Jesus' divinity differs from ours only in degree, not in kind. He said that Jesus was a teacher who showed us the way of faith and not the object of faith. And here is where history sadly rhymes again. Because for the last several years, Ligonier Ministries and uh, Lifeway, um, Lifeway Research of the Southern Baptist Convention have teamed up to do a major survey of the beliefs of our fellow Americans. And in last year's survey, 44% of evangelicals, uh, the people who say they believe the Bible, said they believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 44%, not of liberals, not of Americans in general, 44% of evangelicals say, yeah, great teacher, not God. That number has been rising very rapidly in the last few years, and an ominous sign that, well, it's deja vu all over again, as uh, a famous theologian said. That uh, number rising steadily, it is a very ominous sign that Fosdick might be right, that we have already largely won the battle we started out to win. The future of the churches is in the hands of modernism. I, I, I was shocked when I read that number, and what can we say? I mean, what can we say to people, our, our, our dear friends, our, our neighbors, our loved ones, our colleagues, who have similar sentiments, who revere Jesus in a way, but d- deny the most important thing about him? What do we have to say to them? 
or let me not presume, what, what Jesus do you believe in? And why does it matter what people believe about Jesus as long as they believe? Well, this will be our study for today. First, the simple question, which Jesus do you believe in? That was a very important question, not just in the 19th century, or the, eight, uh, the 20th century, I guess, the 21st century, but in the 1st century. As people were asking that same question, and John introduces us to Jesus with these magnificent words in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God that word who became flesh. It's difficult to imagine a more profound statement about Jesus. Um, Those words are familiar because, of course, both Genesis and John begin in the beginning. However, while Genesis starts at the beginning and works forward, John starts there and works backward to tell us what preceded all this, what lies behind and before time and space, before there was anything made that was made. There was this Word that was with God and that was God. So that Jesus could tell the people, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and my Father are one before Abraham was I am. As they took up stones to stone him. One modern writer explains it this way. There is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus is the very open heart of God. The very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. End quote. In Jesus, we find our God and his perfections on display in a way that we can understand, even a child can relate to. Even you children here can truly know God in him. For we see in Jesus God's love, God's compassion, God's condescension, God's wisdom, God's kindness and sternness and goodness. You know, uh, Centuries ago, people went into monasteries for their whole lives, locking themselves away so that they might have time to be able to contemplate Jesus Christ, the living God incarnate, the one who made the stars, who was born a baby of a virgin bright. Although the monastic ideal was a mistake, It was not as great a mistake as Christians who never paused to meditate on the glories and the wonders of this astounding truth. For this is, as uh, the playwright Dorothy Sayers put it, the only thing that's ever really happened. This is the source and wellspring of everything that there is. We're told in verse 3 and 4 about his work. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is, creation and providence are in the hands of Jesus, the Christ. He is our maker 
through whom all things were made, the author and sustainer of our lives. You know, the, that famous scientist Stephen Hawking said, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. Ambitious, but John says it's been revealed. That theory is a person, and the person is Jesus. This is the one who explains your life here and mine. It's being created and sustained. Your maker, the one whose life has given you life, and he is the source of all goodness, life and light and truth. It, it can't be right if you're not looking to him and trusting in him. You know, at one point, the disciples went up with Jesus on a mountain, and they were shocked to see that all of a sudden the glory of Jesus burst forth and he shone his face white like lightning and they, they fell to the ground. But, but friends, what's astonishing is not that he should have so much glory. What's so astonishing is that he should ordinarily be so inglorious all of his days, born into poverty, having no reputation, mean and abased, nowhere to lay his head but a manger, crucified after a ministry of scarcely three years? Is that not mind-blowing to behold in Jesus your God? The Bible makes much, of course, of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But, but friends, the cross is only the cross because the one who hung upon it is the Lord of glory, come down from heaven to take into his infinite self our misery, sin, shame and despair. Jesus is not merely a good teacher and good example, though he certainly is that, like no one else has ever been. But none of that would have done anything or saved us from sin. None of that would have brought us any hope had Jesus also not been the maker and redeemer of the world, the one who was the living God come and made flesh. Only a man could bleed and die, but only a man who was God could die a death sufficient to pay for the sins of all. Only he could renew the hearts of all. Only he could find the way to open life for all who come to him we never could have. He alone is the sun in our sky, and everything else we learn about him in this book, his humiliation, his suffering to save his people, his friendship, his redeeming love— are all important only because of this. Jesus is God. And this is the spark that kindles love within us when we find in Him this astonishing God, this eternal majesty that has come down to us to penetrate our thick thinking and before whom we bow in the depths of our soul to say, what kind of a God is this? This is the God that John wants us not only to believe in, but to adore, you see. That's why this flowery language, that's why, that's why such a poetic description of this one that we might be just lost in wonder and contemplation. However, this is the very point that liberalism contests. For Christ, as Fosdick has already mentioned, is an example, yes, but not Emmanuel. 
He showed us the way, but he is not the way. He was a natural man, not a supernatural man. He was a humble teacher of Galilee, but not the miracle-working Lord of glory. Now, that teaching, I admit, I admit, makes Jesus much, much more acceptable to modern people in a scientific age. And what do you do with all of his miracles? Well, those are the mythological accretions. You can sort those out and get down to the real Jesus that was just a humble teacher of Galilee, they said. Uh, Now, Machen explains, the, the New Testament without the supernatural would be far easier to believe. But the trouble is, it would not be worth believing. Without the miracles of the New Testament, it would contain an account of a holy man. But of what benefit would such a man and his death, which marked his failure, be to us? The loftier the example which Jesus set, the greater becomes our sorrow at failure to attain it. The greater our hopelessness still under the burden of sin. Without the miracles, we might have a teacher. With the miracles, we have a Savior. Which Jesus do you believe in? And our second question for the day, does it matter? Does it matter what people believe about Jesus? Well, in fact, um, John records here, starting in uh, verse 10, the world's two great responses to Jesus. To show you the difference. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, And the world did not know him. What do you mean they didn't know him? They they didn't know the man, Jesus? No, of course. Uh, Of course they knew the man, Jesus. He was very hard to miss in those days, causing such a stir. Even secular writers note that. He was hard to miss. And everyone had some opinion about him. Oh, some said he was Elijah. Or one of the prophets. Others said, John the Baptist has come back from the dead. That's why miracles are at work in him. Well, they all knew Jesus one way or another. But the point is, when John says they did not know him, they did not know him as God, their maker, the one through whom the worlds were made. Again, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Such Such tragic words. But besides being tragic, why why else does it matter? Does it matter what people believe about Jesus? Oh, yes. I'm going to give you four things from the passage. First, adoption. Adoption. That we might know a father's love. Did you catch that in the passage? Verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. This is, this is often overlooked, but what would we know about God without Jesus? I mean, we would know he's a, a, a great uh, creator and a very wonderful, giving God who has done all this. 
but we would not know him as a father. Um, Jesus reveals a God, not some God in general, but a God who has and always has been a father. Jesus, for example, prays later, Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And he goes on to say of us, Righteous Father, the world hasn't known you, though I know you, and these have known that I sent you. And I've declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. No other religion makes this love of God the explanation of everything. No other religion dares to say we love because he first loved us. Love may be a virtue in other religions or other human philosophies, but it's far more for us. It's the very heart of our faith. It's the reason for this whole drama of salvation. Jesus went to the cross because he loved me and gave himself for me, wrote Paul. He had come into the world on an errand of love. And so the first thing, that knowing Jesus as he is, we can know God as he truly is, as a father. In fact, we can know him as our own loving father, as many as received him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Second, for adoration, for adoration, that we might behold God's glory. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. If Jesus is God and God is with us, it's not enough for us, it's not enough for us simply to believe in him or to obey him. No, John aims at so much more. He's to be reveled in, to be rejoiced in, that we behold his glory and beauty in another way. It's, it's sad that we are so spiritually feeble, but if the God who made heaven and earth in order to save us for our sins, from our sins came into the world incognito, to reconcile us to himself and to suffer an ignominious death, to give us endless life. I say, if God did all that, then that is shout from the housetops, thrilling news. The most wonderful thing you have ever heard in your life. Come, let us adore him. And Charles Spurgeon said, if you do not long to know Christ more than you do, you don't yet know him at all. For to know him is to adore him. The Bible says that God has shown this light in our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, there is no beauty, there is no glory, there is no greatness like this. Jesus is the radiance of the invisible God, worthy of worship, awe, wonder, and affection. And this is meant to thrill our hearts. It is for adoration we beheld his glory. Now, today, there's no mention of anything transcendent, of course, on the television that people today watch for hour upon hour, or at least stream for hour upon hour. And in public life, there is no mention of God. There is no mention of glory. There is nothing of a life to come whose eternal perspectives on human life are absent, even from the preaching of the Christian church. And it's no wonder that human beings despair. 
It's no wonder that people struggle to know whether human existence has any meaning or purpose at all. But I tell you, the incarnation of the Son of God is the greatest possible demonstration that your life has meaning, that we have far greater significance than this brief sojourn in the world could ever give us. God is now man forevermore, and this fact gives more meaning and value to your life, to human existence, than anything else we might possibly say. God has taken upon himself your nature. Behold the glory of the only begotten and what confidence and assurance and peace and boldness and strength this gives us. What thanksgiving that the the Almighty did not just leave us to our misery and death. It is for adoration. For in His coming to die for us, we begin to know something of the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, as it's written. Well, it's important for adoration. Uh, Third, what does this mean for salvation? Well, verse 16, of his fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace, or some of you have, grace upon grace, a Semitic way of saying uh, grace from start to finish, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The constant message of the Bible, you see, is that man could never lift himself up to salvation, that salvation is of the Lord, it says, from the very beginning. Our salvation can't come through those things that liberalism triumphs in, human perfection, positive thinking, right, or any of the things extolled by the modern liberalistic religion. But in Jesus, our Maker has come to accomplish what we could never do, and to die, that you and I might live in life with a capital L, now and forever. Understand, dear friends, again, if you've never understood it before, I say it again, the one carrying his cross to Calvary is our God. There on the cross dies for you and for me, Emmanuel. The sin that we have is a much greater problem, obviously, than we, must, than we might have understood if it took that to get rid of it. But if he has come to get rid of it, it must be gone indeed. We must have had a great deal to remove, for it took the greatest thing that ever happened to deliver us. And so he has delivered us. But this also means where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. If he has put away your sins, sir, ma'am, they are gone. They are gone. One drop of that precious blood is worth more than all the lives of all the peoples in the earth. When we come to realize it was no mere man who suffered on Calvary's cross, but the Lord of glory, we are bold to say that one drop of that precious blood is of more value than all the rivers of blood that have ever flowed upon all the battlefields of history. And now we have a true confidence in death and the day of judgment. For the one who judges the world and condemns is none other than the one who has died to justify us in his love to those who believe in his name. Grace 
upon grace. Jesus says later in the book, if you don't believe that I am, taking the name of Jehovah, of God, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I mean, that's pretty important, isn't it? If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John wrote, whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this doctrine, he writes, don't receive him into your house or greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Speaking of uh, church, by the way, uh, not a home, but that's another sermon. Faith in Christ, the everlasting God incarnate. It is so important for not only adoration, not only for adoption, but for salvation. And finally, for number four, for revelation. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That God, that we might know Him, hasn't sent us merely a a prophet, a, a messenger, or a press secretary. Thank the Lord. He came Himself. He came that we might know Him truly. And, and so often we in this life feel alone and isolated, and our loved ones even don't understand or they positively misunderstand what we are going through, but there, are, there is no understanding, there's no lack of understanding from heaven. For the Lord of glory has taken upon your nature. Jesus knows about all of your private losses and crosses. He has come to us and revealed the heart of God to us that we might have hope. And let us come to Christ then with our burdens to lay them down before him, knowing for certain that we are never alone. We must, it feels like, suffer alone, but we are never alone. And the one who said, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age, is with you now. You know, in the movie uh, Ben-Hur, the classic version, never seen the new one, uh, the, the main character, Judah Ben-Hur, is taken captive by the Roman soldiers. He's being led away to row as a slave in a galley ship. Ben-Hur is parched. He's exhausted, and he drops to the ground at one point, and he cries out, God, help me. And it's at that very moment that uh, Jesus, uh, the film never shows his face, only his back, but Jesus reaches down to give that man a drink. And when the Roman sees, soldier sees this act of kindness to his prisoner, he yells at Jesus to leave the man alone, and he raises his whip to strike him, and Jesus turns and looks at the soldier who just stands there, immobilizes, is immobilized. He, he has an indescribable look. He, he, he lowers his whip, and he, he turns away. And the effect of the film is to convey that this encounter with Jesus, that an encounter with Jesus, is so powerful, so moving, so striking, as even to melt the heart of the hardest men. And whatever we might have thought about the Lord before, when we, when we have encountered Jesus, we are transformed by the glory of God. And salvation 
for the Christian. It doesn't mean floating on a cloud in heaven. It doesn't mean 40 virgins in paradise. It isn't absorption to the world's soul. It certainly isn't just the satisfaction of having a good life. It means to be with Him forever, to become like He is, to share in His kingdom and glory and everlasting life, to prepare a place for us He goes, that where I am, He says, there you may be also. And no wonder they call us Christians, for we will share in His everlasting life, which is to know God and Christ, who He was sent. Who was sent. Machen writes, the Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of the modern Reconstruction. He's real. He's real. That is to say, in Jesus, we can truly know God. So, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, if Christ were not God, taking upon himself a human nature, the Word made flesh, then whatever else he was, it's of no particular significance to you and to me. An example, perhaps, but if he were a mere man, then all the claims that he had made and all the promises he had given are just preposterous failures. He is not the way, not the truth, nor the life, not the only way to the Father. And if there is a God, we are left to discover some other way to grope for him because the long-dead Jesus can no longer help us now. If he were not the incarnate God who takes away the sin of the world and who rose from the dead as victor, over sin and death, ascended to the right hand of his Father, coming again to judge the living and the dead, all is darkness, lost, and despair. Uh, what is it that uh, Russell said in a free man's worship? Uh, on this unyielding despair, uh, must our lives be built, atheist that he was. Well, here is rather good news, and I'll let Machen give it to you. In Jesus, we find a genuine person, whom a man can love. And men have loved him through all the Christian centuries. And the strange thing is that despite all the efforts to remove him from the pages of history, there are those who love him still. Come and welcome to God by the love of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your truth, this instruction of your precious word, Oh, Lord, how our hearts have been lifted and how we are thrilled again to see the true glory of our God revealed in the face of our Savior. We thank you for these majestic words which preach to us not only a meager God, a meager salvation, uh, a God that leaves us in the dark. Oh, no. We find in him the light that lightens every man. We find in him the life and the love that we have so needed and craved. Oh, our Father, what wondrous love is this. What amazing love that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, as the hymn writer put it. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, and we sing with them glory to that newborn king. It's in him that we pray.